For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 491. We want to think what I'm going through right now, I think I recognize on some level something other people may have gone through, but but I'm I'm a bundle of unique experiences. I'm different. And so to say, well, I'm I'm gonna sort of rely on a collective out there to predict my outcomes, well, I may find offense at that because it suggests that I'm just like everybody else. We've all had the desire to travel through time and see what our lives will be like later in life. But while we want the best possible future for ourselves. We often fail to make decisions that would truly make that version of the future a reality. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. In a way, you might say this podcast exists in large part to help you plan for the best future you possible. Each week, we sit down with a successful and inspiring author and talk about his or her latest book and their unique insights on a number of different topics, things like leadership, business, sales, marketing, jobs and career, entrepreneurship, and lots more. And our featured book today has a blurb on the front cover by Daniel Pink, who says the rare book that will change whom you see in the mirror. The book is called Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today. And it's written by Hal Hirschfield. I'll be asking Hal questions like, are we the same over time? Is future me really me? ways we can make ourselves feel closer to the future version of us, and much, much more. I want to invite you to join the Read to Lead community online, where several hundred people right now are interacting with one another every single day to discuss the very kinds of things we talk about on this show each and every week. Books, of course, personal and professional development, leadership, business, etc. And I've made it possible for you to join Make sure you like it before you commit for two full weeks. It's a free 14-day trial of a Read to Lead Plus membership. We invite monthly guest experts in to do some training. I do a monthly AMA. There's a new business book summary added to the community every week, a chance to be featured in front of the hundreds of members, exclusive content published only inside the community, and much, much more. Again, you can sign up for a free two-week trial. You do that by going to jeffbrown.me. If you like what you see, it's just nine bucks a month after that. If not, no hard feelings, no obligation. One more time, the web address is jeffbrown.me. Hal Hirschfield is a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, where he's won numerous awards for his teaching and research. His research on future selves has received widespread attention in outlets like NPR, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. His research has been published in prestigious business, psychology, and general science academic journals, as well as in the Harvard Business Review, Scientific American, and Psychology Today. His new book is called Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today. 
Well, Hal, I'm excited to talk about this book. Uh, it's a book that I thoroughly enjoyed. I'm in a mastermind group. And uh, when it comes to the next book we read together, this is the one I'm going to recommend or actually insist that we read together <laughs> as a group. Excited to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Jeff. And thanks for those kind words about the book. I appreciate that. Well, I want to start with sort of a personal question. One of the things you you dreamed about when you first learned that you were going to become a father was all the the fun things you were going to get to do with your kids. And, and were I to have kids, I think you and I would be in the same boat because for you, that boiled down to introducing them to music and movies. So I, I'm curious to know, what have Smith and Hayes learned about with regard to music and movies? <laughs> this is such a funny question because it's a great example of how it's really hard to predict the future. You know, um, So I've, I've certainly introduced them both to you know, my, the quote unquote, my bands, mm -hmm. uh, not, not any of the movies quite yet. They're a little young for that, but you know, it's, it's so funny because just this summer, my daughter, my daughter, who's now seven and a half has started, you know, getting influenced by her peers and older peers, you know, she went to camp. And so she's coming home asking if we can put on Taylor Swift and Katy Perry. And <laughs> now to be fair, I have utmost musical respect for them. Um, they're just not like who I typically listen to. And right. then my son, of course, because he just wants to be like my daughter this morning on his way to preschool, he said, can you put on Katy Perry? And I thought, oh, here's a great example that like, you know, they are their own people and they're going to have their own um, preferences. And, I, you know, it's it's been funny because I've had to sort of let go of the fact that they're they're not asking me to put on Bell and Sebastian in the national for some reason. <laughs> how, how strange. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about the the movie part of that equation when when the time is right for sure. Yeah, right, exactly. As I read your book, I found myself reading it through the lens, oftentimes, of a course I teach called Note Making Mastery. And and one of the reasons mm. that was the case was because one of the things we talk about in Note Making Mastery is is collecting knowledge. Uh, such that it's advantageous to future you. The idea being to be a good collector of knowledge, uh, capture knowledge effectively, distill and organize it effectively, connect seemingly disparate ideas together, such that when future you comes back to it, future you is basically just connecting the dots, yeah. is, is finding the, the through line. So that kind of leads to my, my first question uh, to address this idea that you address in, in the very first chapter is who we are over time. Uh, is the person I am today the same person I am a week uh, from now or a year from now or someone else, perhaps? As I say in Note Making Mastery, when you write your notes, write as if you're writing for someone else because future you is someone else. I absolutely love this this conversation and this question. And I'll get to the question in one second. But I think you, you, you couldn't be more spot on when you mm. talk about this. You know, In fact, several years ago, I saw somebody had... There was some tech review of Apple's Notes app, You know, the very basic mm -hmm. on the iOS. And one of the comments in the review was that this is a way to be a friend to your future self. You know, and, and what's missed there though is part of what you're talking about, which is that the, you know, the level at which we sort of undertake these exercises. And 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 for you know, for what it's worth, it's it's funny to think back to our past selves. I recently was trying to go back to some data that I had from a very long time ago. And I thought, oh God, I wish that I had, you know, kept a notes file. Now I do this, but 15 years ago I didn't. Now your question though is, you know, are are we essentially you know, is that future self the same over time? Is that mm -hmm. is that a different person? And it's a very complicated question. 
you know, the, uh, and I'll see if I can boil it down quickly. Mm. On some levels, we are very different over time. On other levels, you know, we're the same. Mm. Personality, some aspects of our personality change, some remain the same. But I think what's maybe even more telling in this particular case is that when we think of our future selves, many of us tend to see them as if they are other people. You know, mm-hmm. So some research has found that we, we have a higher likelihood of using the third person perspective when we describe our future selves. You know, He is doing this thing, blah, blah. Whereas I would never say that <laughs> about what, what my plans are for tonight. Like he is going to a Mexican restaurant. Like you'd say, who are you talking about? You know? Yeah. Um, and it's a funny thing to that end. I think there's something to the analogy, some truth to the analogy that our future selves are almost like other people. To many of us, uh, I think you would agree, our future selves are maybe strangers in, in a way. Um, yeah. I guess that begs the question, who cares if my future self is yeah. a stranger? Why, why should it matter, right? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And and strangers is the right, that, that's a, it's a great analogy because mm. like, think about if I, you know, walking down the street, uh, if I was taking my dog for a walk, I might walk by one of our neighbors. Uh, I have this one guy in particular I think of who I see all the time. I don't know his name. Mm-hmm. We're not like we're often on other sides of the street. We rarely wave at each other. It's not like <laughs> I don't like him, <laughs> um, but I do know he exists. Like, you know, if you'd ask me to describe some people in the neighborhood, I could describe him. I know nothing about him. He is a distant stranger from me, th- though I know he exists. And I think, you know, what's interesting about this, if we sort of apply that lens to our future selves. Now, let's think about this. Like if that guy came up to me tomorrow and said, like, Hey man, I've got to move some stuff out of my garage this weekend. Might you help me? I would feel really awkward and I would be like, look, you know, <laughs> I also have to move some stuff out of my garage. So I don't know that I'm going to be able to. <laughs> now, the the funny thing here is that if that's how we think of our future selves, I mean, you said who cares, but you know, mm. if our future self is kind of like that stranger, well, I've got to put some effort into for you, you start with the notes example. It requires some effort and some time and some intentional thought to make my notes as clear as possible. And I'm going to be more likely to do that if I have a strong relationship with my future self, if, if that is a guy who I really do care about. Mm. But if my future self is kind of like the, the guy in the neighborhood I don't know, like, like why, why should I go through the extra effort now for him? It doesn't, mm. it almost is irrational. Mm. So I think that's why we care about this. I hear you saying that as far as our, our relationship with our future self is concerned, it's safe to assume that a stronger connection will lead to positive outcomes more often than not, that, that will make smarter decisions in the present, in other words, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think part of what we're circling around is this idea that if we have a sort of a strong relationship, like, you know, it's sort of saying, like, if, it, if my future self is not that guy, I don't know, but rather like my next door neighbor or my best friend or an aging parent or a kid or a spouse. In other words, swap out future self for someone I care about, Mm. someone I feel some sense of responsibility, obligation, empathy toward. That type of relationship will be predictive of me doing some things for positive outcomes. And, And of course, there's nuance and we can talk about different types of outcomes and so on. But generally speaking, that's the idea. Mm. Well, Hal does a fantastic job of laying out the book, in my opinion. Three parts. Part one, the journey ahead. And that's kind of what we're digging into right now. Part two, which I want to get into in a second, Hal, is is called Turbulence. Uh, And then the last part, The Landing. Uh, The second third of the book, Turbulence, gets into what you call time travel mistakes. 
Right. Um, the first of which is is overly focusing on the present, as I recall. What what might be some of the reasons we get overly focused on the present? The first reason is it's the obvious one, which is that's the period of time we live in. You know, and it's it, so it's like we we could be forgiven for being so focused on the <laughs> stuff that's happening right now, right? It's all that's happening. Another reason is that you know the future is marked by uncertainty and the present is not. So, you know, if you you were to almost apply sort of an evolutionary perspective to things, it makes sense to pay attention to the certain and, mm-hmm. you know, downweight the uncertain, which is the future. We also tend to think that our, you know, our future emotions will somehow be a little bit muted mm. compared to the ones we're experiencing right now. So, you know, you put all those things together and as my... um I have a collaborator, co-author named Liz Dunn, and she had this great line in a paper that I'm not on, a different paper, where she said, the present acts as a magnifying glass for our emotions. Mm. And I think it's such a such a perfect description because it really suggests that because everything feels so important right now, we may be prone to overweight it almost to such a degree that it looks like we have blinders on uh, for the future. Um, another mistake, as I recall, is is thinking of our future selves, but only in a, in a surface level way. Right. All of this brings about, to me, a, a Stoic-inspired philosophy of, of, of easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. A- at least one thing that might relieve the pain and discomfort that comes with difficult decision-making in the present is, is recognizing that others have been or currently are where we hope to be. Mm. Yet, yet so many of us, as you say, balk at the idea of relying on the collective experiences of others. Why, why do you think that is? This is a, it's a great question. And one of the, the, the reasons for this sort of, uh, you said it, likelihood to balk at relying on the, you know, the collective experience of others. This, this is you know, one of the reasons for this. It comes from work by both uh, Dan Gilbert and his colleagues, as well as uh, a postdoc that I've worked with separately, mm-hmm. Poras Kampata. And it part of it boils down to our tendency to want to think of ourselves as unique. I think we we want to think what I'm going through right now. I think I recognize on some level something other people may have gone through, but but I'm I'm a bundle of unique experiences. I'm different, and so to say, well, I'm I'm going to sort of you know rely on the sort of collective out there to predict my outcomes. Well, I may. I might find offense at that because it suggests that I'm just like everybody else. No, the reality, of course, is that we do this all the time. Like nobody box at your Netflix suggested videos or, you know, mm-hmm. TV shows and movies. Nobody box at the like Spotify playlist. And all of that is done by saying, let's look at the collective. Let's look at people just like you and the things that they chose that you're not choosing. And these are recommendations for you. Um, and yet when it comes to sort of life experiences, mm. the idea that, you know, that somebody else is going to know better than me. It's something that we sort of shirk away from. And and what's funny is that the research has shown that in a way, someone else's experiences, someone like us may actually be a more accurate prediction of our own experiences than our simulations about the future, <laughs> because we're pretty bad at doing that. <laughs> There's a chapter uh, in this turbulence section called Packing the Wrong Clothes. And in this chapter is a section uh, that I found uh, very, very interesting called uh, The End Can Be Different. In, in many cultures, including our own, death is is thought of as an outcome, to use your words, to be gotten over. Or maybe that's the words of, of a doctor you quoted now that they think about it. In what ways might we rethink this? Yeah. So the doctor that I talked to is uh, BJ Miller, who is this palliative care doctor up in San Francisco, who's done a lot of thinking about how to how to change our relationship with with the end and with death. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem here 
is that this is a period of time we don't want to think about. It's also, you know, sort of in Western cultures, especially it's associated with sort of decline and unhappiness and many of the things that we don't want to experience, even though that may not necessarily be the case. Part of the problem arises in our sort of inability to make mature predictions about the end. So, you know, in the book, one of the things I spotlight is what's known as the end of history illusion, the the idea that I, I, I know that I've changed from the past to the present, but I don't anticipate as much change from the present to the future, even though in all likelihood there will be. And then you sort of apply that lens out mm. toward end of life planning. And one of the things that you quickly realize is that we may not appreciate enough mm. the ways that our future preferences will change over time. And, you know, I think this is an ongoing investigation, an ongoing topic of research, but I, I would really love to explore the idea that we can sort of improve these plans or rather mm. improve the likelihood of even making them by fostering more of a sense of connection, not only to our own future selves, but to the future selves of our loved ones, uh, mm. who will ultimately be the ones who experience our deaths, <laughs> assuming that we love them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really hard to think about the world with us no longer in it. <laughs> yeah. That the world will just go on like any other day once we're gone. And that's that's hard to wrap our heads around too. Roger Angel, the the baseball writer, he has a great essay about, I think it might be called something like the things Carol missed. And, it, you know, he's mm. talking about when his wife died. He starts by saying, you know, early on, it's just a few things, you know, it's like she she missed, you know, the the sort of memorial service after mm. the, the, whatever the the, the 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 gathering after the service. And then he sort of goes on to talk about all the sort of accumulation. He was like, if she were to come back right now, I don't even know where I would start. Mm. And, it, you know, I think you apply that to our own end of lives. And it's it's really disconcerting to think about, you know, the party continuing without you in a way. Mm, but it's so much more than the party. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Veering now into the final third of the book, if we want to smooth the relationship between our present and future selves, what might be some of the things we do to make the future self, the future version of us feel closer, perhaps? Yeah. So, you know, I would say on a, as a general principle, we want to try to do what we can to paint a more vivid, concrete, clear, and emotional picture of that future mm. self. You know, so one, you know, one method that I really like, if we want to get down to sort of, you know, the concrete here, uh, there's a sort of conversation exercise, a letter exchange where you write a letter to a future self, and then you write a letter back from that future self. And there's, you know, something so nice about that because it suggests that we're creating a dialogue rather than a, a monologue. And mm. it also forces you to sort of step into the shoes of your future self and, and see the world through their eyes. And this too, it's where you mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, this concept of reverse time travel. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. So one of the projects I've been working on, this is with Kate Christensen and Sam Malio, mm. involves rather than us moving ahead in time and thinking you know, about the path between our present and future selves, it involves starting at our future self and moving back in time. And so mm. saying, you know, how similar is my future self to me is a different question than saying, how similar am I to my future self? Mm. It's very subtle. But the reason that that question differs is because we have a different starting point. Mm. And so if we, you know, if we start in the future, that future becomes a little bit more certain. We're starting 
you know, in a place that makes it a little bit more concrete. And we're trying to think about, I, I suspect that part of what's happening also is that we're focusing on the things in common between that future self and the present self, rather than all the things that we don't share, which mm. may be true when we start in the present and move to the future. Mm. I want to dip our toe in the water of these final two chapters just a bit before I ask some questions not directly related to the book, if I may. Absolutely. Um, talk about the different categories that you reference of, of what you call commitment devices that we can mm. employ to, to better ensure we arrive at the future that, that we ultimately want. Yeah. And so commitment devices essentially are when we try to put guardrails on our future behavior to constrain mm-hmm. ourselves to act in the way that we want to. And there's a variety of classifications, but you know the way that I like to think about it and it's derived from work of others as well is to say, well, there's what we call psychological commitments where I'm basically saying that I'm going to do something. I'm telling you, you know, Jeff, I will, you know, talk to you at 12 PM on a Wednesday. And you know, mm-hmm. if I don't, there's no real like cost associated with that mm-hmm. other than you may be thinking that I'm an unreliable person. And I don't really want that. So if I make a commitment to say, take better notes or read more or exercise mm-hmm. more, whatever it is, and I make that commitment to someone else and then I fail to follow through, that doesn't paint a great picture of me. There's also commitment devices where we take away options. So if I'm, you know, if I'm instead of reading my books, I'm tempted to pop on the TV and watch, you know, another episode, an old episode of 30 Rock. Well, I might want to say, well, what would stop that from happening? What if I lock up the remotes to the Apple TV? And then I, I can't even do it if I wanted to. And then there's a third category of commitment devices, which is where we add in a punishment if I do something. So if I said to you, you know, Jeff, I'm going to read more and, you know, stream less, and you're going to check in with me. And, and by the way, if I, fail to follow through my commitment, I want you to magically press a button and have uh, $500 of mine donated to a you know political organization that I don't want to donate to. <laughs> um, I'll be neutral here and I can say a re-elect campaign because that applies to... <laughs> 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 that applies to both parties. I mean, in fact, there's no, you know, the, the, this isn't just magic that, you know, stick, stick.com with two Ks, you know, they allows you to set up these mm-hmm. sorts of contracts where an accountability partner can introduce the punishment there. So, and that, that's a very strong deterrent. Mm. We talked a little bit about this and I'm referenced the, the, the sort of stoic mantra of easy choices, hard life, hard choices, easy life. It's, it's not all pain for present us, current us necessarily, right. but with current us, mostly doing hard things now, mostly. So future us doesn't have to. Uh, What are some ways that we can make the present a little easier beyond what you, some of the things you were just talking about? I mean, I think, you know, one way of thinking about this is that it's never the case that future us is doing things to make life easier for present us, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) It always goes one direction because of the way that time travels, right? (laughs) Keeping that in mind, one you know, sort of final strategy is to try to make those sacrifices feel easier, feel easier to undertake. So, you know, the, I love the idea of breaking things down into small, as small of a component as possible. You know, some of my own research asked people if they want to sign up for an automatic savings account, and it's either framed as 150 bucks a month or $5 a day. Mm. And it, it's the same amount, but $5 a day to a lot of people feels like something they can do. Because because I think of all the other categories of things that cost five bucks a day that I'd be willing to give up. I'd be willing to give up one of those. Mm. $150 a month feels harder because there's not so many categories that fall under that bucket. And it's hard for me to say, well, 
okay, I'd be willing to save and and not do whatever is $150 a month. Um, you know, the, the reality was when we when we asked people this, we saw a huge uptick in signups for a savings account. Four times as many people signed up when it was framed as five dollars a day. That that feels easier, you know. And other researchers have found that that same sort of framing works for volunteer hours. You know, you want to get someone to volunteer, don't do eight to ten hours a month. You know, how about one to two hours a week? Mm. And look, this is just one. You know, this is just one strategy in the book. I talk about others. And I mean, I think it's also sort of an encouragement, you know, to sort of prompt people into thinking about what are their own ways? What are the idiosyncratic ways that I can or that you can break things down into smaller chunks? You know, I, I do this myself when I go on a run. I sometimes think, well, you know, ideally I'd go on a 30 minute run or longer. And sometimes it's really hard to sort of like, motivate to do that. But I said, well, what if I just start with a five minute run? <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know, I know what I'm doing there. Right. But right. It, it is a little bit of a trick. Yeah. I believe it's either this chapter or chapter eight. I can't remember which, where you talk about temptation bundling, bundling in the, yeah. in the uh, research that Katie Miltman has done there, mm. which coincidentally, an article she wrote on temptation bundling, uh, we use in Note Making Mastery as an exercise for taking an article from the web and distilling that down and crystallizing it and remixing it and et cetera, et cetera, which I thought was when I read about temptation bundling your book, I thought, oh, well, another, another coincidence. I'm thinking about Note Making <laughs> Mastery anyway, and there it is. Anything I didn't talk about with regard to the book that you want to make sure people walk away with or know about? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big points I try to make at the end of the book is that it's not all about present sacrifices for future well-being, right? But mm -hmm. that like that, that in fact isn't the that's not my that's not the the gist of the book. And that's I think that would be the wrong interpretation. Mm -hmm. You know, really if there's a focus, it's about figuring out how we can sort of like smooth things out over time between who we are now and who we will be. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that means leaning in and doing the indulgence now, doing the thing that really is meaningful now. So that future me has memories and experiences mm. to look back on. Mm. Sometimes it means holding back so that there's more for later. But if we just did one or the other, I don't think that's the type of life that will be as highly valued as we want it to be. Right. But rather, sort of figuring out the mix uh, is what, what may matter the most. We can't live every moment for how it impacts the future. We have to experience things in the now too. It's, it's a balance, just like anything else. Um, tough question uh, for you, no doubt, in that uh, your background and being an author and the courses that you teach, uh, I want you to name a couple of books <laughs> that yeah, yeah. are among your, your favorites, maybe two or three that, that have had a significant impact on you over the years, if you can narrow it down to two or three. Yeah, no, no, it's a really good question. Um, so, I was an English major. I was an English and psych major in college. So I, you know, so I actually get a lot of inspiration from fiction yeah. um, and not just nonfiction. So A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. It's a beautiful novel about sort of these like, like kind of, it's kind of starts with like a group of friends, uh, you know, in New York and it it just spins off from each each of them and their sort of stories and like how they intersect with like total strangers too and there's like you, you could you know you could make a map and see like how all these points of connection intersect mm -hmm. and i mean first off she's an incredible writer but separate from that it is such a i think such a beautiful meditation on the sort of like interconnections that we all experience in ways mm -hmm. that we have no i we we really have no idea about and i think that you know that's really helped 
me and my just sort of life and then also you know my my uh, my work and my writing as well i also loved a nonfiction book called i mean it sounds it sounds very self-helpy but it's called how proust can change your life by elaine de baton he's a french i don't know what you would call him sort of public philosopher i guess <laughs> and he takes all of these lessons from from proust that are you know i would say probably like inaccessible to mm. a, lot, a mm. lot of people without proper you know a proper whatever, you know, like college level course and distills them into these very sort of practical lessons for life that, you know, I think that book might be 20 years old, maybe more, even Mm. 25 years old. And I, I found that you know, just like incredibly useful and something I come back to Mm. nearly 500 episodes of this podcast and two books that are being recommended for the first time. That's not easy to do, sir. Good job. Good job. Well, you, your listeners can tell me, that. well, those aren't good recommendations because oh. they're not that helpful. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure they're excellent recommendations. I have no doubt about it. Uh, you tease that your, your note-taking has improved uh, over the last 15 years earlier. I'd be curious if you'd be willing to share any tips or tricks or strategies that you've acquired over the years when it comes to note taking, or as we like to call it, note making, uh, knowledge yeah. capture, and et cetera? One way it's improved, I, I, I mean, it's like, I, I hate to get to the sort of concrete level of specific apps, but I, you know, I love Evernote. Mm-hmm. Um, I know everybody has their sort of like, you know, specific preference and, and taste, but I feel like so much of, so many of the things that I think about, you know, happen while I'm driving or mm. racing between things and to be able to sort of like jot something down or mm. <laughs> dictate something in a way that then appears across my platforms. And then also to be able to, you know, save things. So, you know, I, when I was mm. both when I was writing the book and, you know, when I teach my class, it's so nice to come across something that I'm reading and be able to save it into a, you know, a well-labeled and organized folder. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the book writing was easy because I had gone back to all the stuff I'd been saving for years and years. But one thing that was interesting is that I think sometimes in the present, I categorize on too broad of a level. And then I later go back and say, I really should have gone more narrow. You know, so mm-hmm. I had this folder that was like book. <laughs> and then once I started writing, I realized I need to divide this into, you know, 10 subfolders or nine subfolders or whatever it was. Right. So that's a space I'm still trying to improve on. Mm. Uh, You mentioned being on the go and capturing things. A couple of apps that I found quite helpful are are audio based. Audio pen is one audio pen.ai and theoasis.com is another. And I recommend those two specifically because they don't just transcribe your out loud thoughts, but they take your out loud thoughts, which is a lot of times gibberish in the midst of genius right. and 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 it fixes all of that such that what it spits out is coherent and organized already instantly that's great uh, via the ai so that that might be something worth worth checking out oh i appreciate that recommendation well the book again is called your future self how to make tomorrow better today i highly recommend it your future self and your current self will both thank you <laughs> for having read it. Al, thank you so much for being here and taking the time. I really, really appreciate it. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it as well. I've got tons of highlights from Hal's book. Lots of things I've underlined that I want to dig into a little bit more later. Got lots of value out of it. I think you will too. You can pick it up at my website. I've got a link there at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 491 for episode 491. 
There you'll also find uh, other links and resources we talked about today, including how to connect with Hal online if you'd like to do that. One more time, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 491. Sometime this week, be sure to make your way over to jeffbrown.me to sign up for a free two-week trial of Read to Lead Plus. Lots of value being created there every day, not just by me, but by members. And we'd love to have you as our newest member. JeffBrown.me, one more time, is the place to go. Next week, I welcome author Jason Del Rey, who tells us why, even though you may not be working for a company the size of, say, Amazon or Walmart, there's still plenty we can learn from these giants. His book is called Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for our wallets. Again, that's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Well, that does it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.